I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no books. Maybe just one. This is Radio Days. Even before some listeners started emailing me asking about this topic, doing a topic on radio... Um, it was on my list of things to do. Uh, take a look at these UFO or paranormal-focused radio programs, how they developed, and the cultural milieu in which they emerged. Then I realized that it would be better if I just found some neat clips and avoided using the word milieu. Also, on Facebook and Twitter, I threw the question out there of who you all thought of first when thinking of UFO-themed radio hosts. I'd already made my list, so we'll do some comparisons at the end. And apologies in advance for the audio quality of some of these clips. Uh, also, your favorites might not be on here. Sorry. I tried to keep this to a reasonable length, and it was so tempting to just play these 10-minute long clips, but I realized that's not a great listening experience, so I think the longest clip I use is about five minutes. So the whole thing is a little bit of a departure from our usual thing, and uh, oh, one last uh, item. Be sure to save this episode somewhere, because it'll be disappearing really quickly at the first hint of a cease and desist letter from any multinational media corporations out there. So, going all the way back to the beginning, back in the 1940s and 1950s, there were a number of radio specials that took a look at the topic of flying saucers, and many of these were more or less platforms for the Air Force to assuage people's fears about the things they'd seen in the sky. While not the first to cover such topics on radio, Long John Nebel, as he was known to the world, played a massive role both in promoting various UFO and flying saucer figures during the 50s and 60s, as well as pioneering what we would later come to take for granted as overnight radio, broadcast to a vast audience, helped by whatever conditions seemed to enable AM radio to cover huge distances at certain times of the day. Please do not contact me to explain to me how this works. I don't care. But AM tends to travel far at night. Nebel's book about his radio career called The Way Out World, uh, published in 1961, does a good job of relating the antics of the various people on his show, particularly the contactees. In the book, however, he doesn't really go into detail on the decision-making process that went into his show becoming a focal point for UFO and saucer media back during the Golden Age. Reading between the lines, I got the impression that it started as genuine coverage of stories that were dominating the news, and gradually, it became clear to Nebel that UFO personalities were a big draw in terms of audience, and so they became a regular fixture of the show, and this goes along as well with his own interest in the topic. Now, we should be clear that Long John's Party Line was not a Art Bell-style paranormal show. It was a show that covered all kinds of stuff, all kinds of celebrities and things like that, but it was tapping into a subject that was particularly popular at that, uh, at that time. 
So finding material from uh, Long John Neville's shows is not difficult. There's quite a few on the internet archive. I've put links in the show notes. The issue for me in this episode was, was finding a clip or two from these often very lengthy overnight shows it, to, to finding something I could cut down into a listenable period um, or listenable in a brief period of time. Also, the audio quality is not entirely great. So with those caveats in mind, here's a clip from the May 30th, 1958 show with Long John, where he talks about meeting Buck Nelson at the Interplanetary Spacecraft Convention. I met a man out there at this uh, Interplanetary Spacecraft Convention, a man about 60 years of age by the name of Buck Nelson. Buck is a farmer from uh, Missouri, and uh, he claims that he went to the moon, Venus, and Mars one weekend, 4th of July weekend. And uh, when he came back to this planet, the Earth, the Venusians requested Buck to take care of their Venusian dog four or five days. They were going to leave it on this planet, I guess they were going to go to some other planets, you know. And uh, they left this 385-pound dog with Buck Nelson. I can just see some guy on the highway right now, you know. He possibly stopped in to one of the diners on the way, and in this diner, they possibly had, you know, over in the corner, they had a little small bar, and he figured, you know, I've had a real tough week and taken the family out, and I might have one. And so he lifted one, and he's listening to this. He said, can this be... Is this possible? A fellow on the air is talking about a 385-pound dog. This is the last drink you'll have, neighbor. You stick to coffee, you're going to drive. And I'm giving you a square count. This man told me about a 385-pound dog. And well, we've talked to a lot of people who have had uh, unusual stories. So this Buck Nelson story is a sort of preamble to the main guest, a Bob Ewing of Edgewater, Florida, who claimed to be an ambassador to Venus or from Venus, or something. Bob, what do you mean by that, representing the planet Venus? Well, John, after 365 days of our work, Miss Brady and I are given to understand by the Venusians that we represent them. You see, a little bulletin that I put out, the New Era, is there. And um, we are given instructions and guidance whenever we are lecturing, touring, and we know in advance what to do. Uh, we are unpaid employees of the planet Venus, as we see it. Well, now, you've just made the statement, Bob, that you know that you are representing the planet Venus. You know that the publication that you uh, are printing out of Edgewater, Florida, you've just made the statement that you know that this is... Uh, how did you say that again? This is from the planet Venus? From the satellite of the planet Venus. We never talked to dir Venus direct. From the satellite, you seem to be a little confused too, uh, Elodie. Yes, uh, Bob Ewing. I'm sorry, I just heard Mr. Ambassador. Do I understand? Is that correct? There's no titles involved with the Venusians ever. Oh no. Uh, how shall I address you? What do you prefer? Uh, just plain Bob Ewing. That's very Bob well. Ewing. My Bob Ewing. Uh, the satellite of the planet Venus uh, throws me off my bearings for a while. I wish you would elaborate. I have never found any references to a satellite going around the planet Venus. Well, Mr. Lerner, in our work, we are told that the Venusians have planets orbiting, uh, correction, satellites orbiting Earth. Uh, we know that there are ten in number. 
there is a satellite. You are referring to Venusian satellites Venusian orbiting the Earth? Artificially made satellite, yes. Orbiting the Earth that comes from Venus? Yes. Mm-hmm. I see. Now I follow you. Well, I'm glad you follow him because you might be the, uh, the only one. In the coming weeks, we're going to be covering some people who show up a lot on Long John's shows, so we'll be hearing a lot more from the party line uh, as we go. Now, also in the 50s, our old friends at the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, in 1959 had a weekly radio broadcast about UFOs. It didn't last super long, but, uh, but it was good. It was good and interesting, kind of. It's interesting if you're interested in the sorts of things they talked about, which were UFOs. Here's the opening. The UFO Story, a public service information program through the courtesy of this radio station. This weekly program will present factual and authentic reports on unidentified flying objects the world over and will present editorials by men and women from various fields of high standing from around the globe. And now, the UFO story, Bob Berry reporting. I mean, that's all well and good. I mean, it, it sounds it sounds like every other radio program from the 1950s that I've ever heard. And, and so... It's fine. They cover a number of stories, and uh, like their their fellow organization, NICAP, they do a good job of taking the Air Force to task for not being forthcoming with information. Here's a clip. It's a little long. It's the the only really long one of the show, about five minutes. But uh, I, I really think the whole thing needs to be here for it to make sense. This is an example of the type of stories they would cover on this program. Thanks to the Daily Mail of Charleston, West Virginia, and Hugh McPherson of radio station WCHS Charleston for the following report. Now listen closely to the facts. Then listen to the reply sent to me by the Air Force in Washington, and you draw your own conclusions. Quote, at 4.20 a.m. on February the 7th, 1959, a strange object descended from above and hovered for a few seconds over a car driving along a lonely stretch of U.S. Route 601 somewhere in South Carolina. The driver of the car was Emmett West, 1216 Baines Street, an engineer at WCHS-TV in Charleston. He related his experience as follows. I was driving along and noticed the hood of my car was reflecting a greenish-colored light. Looking up, I saw a large, round object descending directly on the car. It appeared to be about 100 feet in diameter. It stopped at about 5,000 feet above me and hovered there for nearly a minute, West stated. He said the object then began to drift horizontally to the left. I got a wonderful view of it then, he said. It was flat on the bottom and had a curved top. There was a sort of luminescent band of greenish light surrounding it, but the center was white. West stopped the car and started to back up to observe the strange object longer. As soon as I started backing up, it left, West stated. It moved horizontally and was out of sight over the horizon in a matter of seconds. I've never seen anything move so fast. West, who is a ham radio operator and carries a radio transmitter in his car, attempted to contact other ham stations in the area to confirm his experience. None could be reached. Upon reaching Bluefield, West Virginia, West contacted the Civil Air Patrol to see if they had any reports. They didn't. Arriving in Charleston several hours later, he discovered that the Air Force had called for him and wanted him to contact them immediately. He got in touch with the officials at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio. They talked to him for some time. Now, I was informed that the long-distance telephone conversation lasted for a period of 55 minutes. Now, they wanted to know exactly what had happened regarding his sighting. In all, 
They asked me the same thing three times, West said. I guess they were trying to see if my story varied, but it didn't. West had some questions for the Air Force, too. Quote, Was my experience unusual, he asked. Not at all, was the reply. Well, did anyone else report the same thing I did? It's possible, was the answer. Air Force officials would divulge no further information. West is not a person to get excited easily. He has flown for 20 years and is not known among his friends as a person who believes unexplained things readily. I'd heard of unidentified flying objects for years, he stated. Although I didn't deny their existence, I wanted to see for myself. I considered them possible, but not probable. But now, I'm firmly convinced that there's something to all of these stories that you hear, West stated. What I saw that night had to be controlled, and common sense will tell you whatever it was could not have been anything we know, he said. It couldn't have been a flare. They don't hover in midair or travel horizontally. I would also rule out balloons. They couldn't possibly attain the speed this object did. West continued by saying, quote, I certainly don't believe it could have been anything put into the air by the United States or any other country. His ambition now was to see the inside of one of those objects. Next, let's recheck the letter I sent to the Air Force regarding West sighting and the results of the Air Force reply. That will be the activity of the UFO story in just a moment. Getting along now with the Emmett West sighting I was discussing recently. First of all, I'll read the section of my letter to the Air Technical Intelligence Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio, dated February the 28th of 1959. Quote, The chief engineer of television station WCHS-TV, Charleston, West Virginia, was returning from the state of Florida during the week of February the 15th, and while in the state of North Carolina around 4 a.m., a bright UFO came into the area and hovered directly over his car, lining up the area around his automobile, unquote. Now for the reply of the Air Force regarding West sighting and his conversation with officials at ATIC in Dayton. The Air Force letter from Washington, D.C., dated March the 18th, 1959, states as follows, quote, The Charleston, West Virginia sighting during the week of February the 15th has not been reported to the U.S. Air Force. The statement that ATIC officials interviewed anyone concerning this sighting is absolutely false, unquote. Well, now what have we here? The only thing offhand that I can think of is the fact that in my letter I stated the wrong date. The sighting occurred on the 7th of February and I was under the impression that it was the 15th. That would have given the Air Force the proper grounds to disown the report since it did not occur on February the 15th. Now regardless, I am quite sure that they are enough details that they would know of whom I was referring to and could have given me the requested information regarding the conversation between Attic officials and Mr. West, providing it did take place. There is definitely something in the wind here, and we're going to dig into this matter a little deeper. Now, to get to the correct facts, the dates, and all of the necessary information, and to do this, another letter had to be sent to the Air Force with the correct information. I'll relay the letter to you next week. So they covered a number of stories, and, um, and, and it was just sort of like that, very straight ahead, very factual, very news-based. And unless you were really keen on deep, intense details of UFO sightings and UFO investigations, I would think it would get a little old. I mean, there was probably something better on another channel. If I'm Fred 50s sitting there at my radio or, or having the radio on while I'm working on my car or doing whatever, I don't know. I just don't know if it would grab me. And that was just, you know, one segment. Uh, just for symmetry, here's the closing of the show. 
We've got a lot of UFO activity coming up for you and some very interesting articles coming up next week. Boy, don't miss it. This is going to be real special. But that wraps it up for this week, friends. The UFO Story is a public information program presented by the Aerial Phenomena Investigation Society in Olean, New York, through the cooperation of this radio station. The UFO Story will continue at the same time next week. Bob Barry reporting. So, bringing this up into the 80s, just uh, because we don't have an unlimited amount of time, there is a great program from California called Open Mind, hosted by a guy named Bill Jenkins. And this was a, a dedicated paranormal-themed program with guests who were big names in their fields and, and callers and everything. It, it really is a very modern-feeling show. UFOs, at least in the episodes I've come across, seem to be a bit of a, a sort of minor topic compared to the more sort of esoteric paranormal thrust of, of the show generally. And the closest I've been able to track down on some of the dates is like the year. If anyone has a specific breakdown of when various episodes aired, like to the day, let me know. A couple of the file names say 1982, but that's about it. In this clip from 1982, uh, host Bill Jenkins talks with UFO crash retrieval research pioneer Leonard Stringfield. Leonard, what uh, in all of the investigation you have done, what uh, comes out as the paramount case, the one that strikes you the most so far? Uh, well, uh, even above the cases, Bill, I would consider the information that I have received from a medical doctor who claims to have, to have performed an autopsy on an alien body. Uh, that is not a particular case, but I mean, it's the information that I find mm -hmm. so, uh, so mind-boggling, so interesting. <clears throat> and uh, this came to me last summer after about six months' negotiation with, uh, with one doctor at a certain hospital, which of course I'm not privileged to name for obvious reasons. I did receive a typewritten page of, uh, of his general description of the body's anatomy, and uh, this is published in my paper with his permission, however, as long as I didn't use his name or the, mm -hmm. or the hospital. Right. Now, I consider that to be very important because uh, what he related to me confirms what I have received from all the other sources, and uh, I think this is very significant. Now, that's, that area is, is a, again, is a, an area of, uh, worthy of discussion and some time. It's nice to get an alien autopsy mention in 1982, though, although in typical UFO fashion where, as the audience, given next to nothing with which to corroborate any of this. I talked to a guy on the phone who said some stuff is the gist of a lot of this, which is part of the fun. Uh, Stringfield was on the show a lot, as were Bill Moore and uh, Fred Steckling, who wrote a book called Alien Bases on the Moon and was the head of the George Adamski Foundation International for a while. And I think his son is in charge of it now, Glenn Steckling. In this episode from 1982, Steckling was talking about the photographs in his book, which showed, I mean, this is kind of obvious, alien bases on the moon. One great thing about UFO radio, going all the way back to Long John Neville, was the notion of callers, listeners calling into the show and participating and very often making things uncomfortable for the guests. Here's a good example of that. KBC, I think Mary is on the line. Mary, how are you? Yes, Mar <laughs> I'm Mary. All right, Bill, this is for you. Okay. And I'm very upset. Okay. Okay, you're in the news, right? Yeah. I mean, you do get the news. 
if the photograph is available to him through NASA, mm -hmm. it would also be available to you, right? That's true. Okay. Then why has that not been offered to any of the nightly news uh, um, TV stations so that we could see it on the news? You know, Mary, I have talked to television news people about doing this. Um, they find it much more interesting to talk about the Ayatollah Khomeini. I, quite often they just don't believe it. And uh, for one, the, the old syndrome, if it's so, the government would have told us, and they don't want to really get into it. There have been television offerings of this kind before in the past, and there certainly will be some in the future. And um, in the, in the formative, you know, in the planning stages right now is uh, a television version of this program, in which because, we certainly will get into it. Because it would seem to me that if even one photograph was shown, and this is authentic, uh, then Ted Koppel would pick it up and have a Nightline special program. Mm -hmm. And this is what's sort of upsetting to me. You see, I want to believe all this. Well, if Ted says it, then it's true, but otherwise no. it's not. No, I'm not saying that. But if someone only wants to claim that it's available only through a book, or, or something no, like that. No, you can get the photographs, hon. Uh, no, I'm saying, I'm saying that uh, if there's a big accident on uh, uh, the Long Beach Freeway, the news is right out there to pick it up and show it on the nightly news. Mm -hmm. If these, uh, if there are, um, if there's this type of thing available to everybody, uh, then I really think it's only fair to the, those of us that are listening that that be put on TV and let us see one of the photographs. I couldn't agree with you more, Mary. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why they don't. I've talked to the people in television about it, mm -hmm. uh, tried to elicit their interest. Uh, it's kind of interesting to them um, why they don't want to go ahead and show the pictures like we do it here on radio. We tell you about them. That's yeah, all but I that's do. that's not the same. I know it's not the same. Because, you see, in our mind, we could say, well, that may be only a shadow you're seeing from a cloud. Well, uh, I know what you're saying. Okay. And, uh, well, that, I had to throw that out because that's the way I feel. Well, that's perfectly okay. Uh -huh. And uh, maybe one of these days they'll grab a hold and uh, catch up with radio over in television and uh, expose some of these things. Okay. All right? Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. Bye-bye. Okay. I like Mary. She makes a lot of sense. As with Long John's show, there are some upcoming episodes with subjects who appeared on Open Mind with Bill Jenkins, so we will be hearing more from Open Minds. There's a link in the show notes to a big collection of these shows on the Internet Archive. Please don't fall for offers on various websites that say they will sell you these episodes. I am 99% sure it's the same files you can get at the Internet Archive for free. And it's not like if you buy it from... Um, oh, there's one particular place, uh, seller selling it on Amazon. I am a hundred percent sure that Bill Jenkins estate or whoever owns the rights to those programs would ever see a penny of that anyway. So if nobody's getting the money for it, um, nobody should be getting money for it. Besides, I'm not entirely sure some of these people are entirely scrupulous. Listen to this pitch from one particular seller on Amazon. Like all our titles, this disc is beautifully inkjet printed on archival quality disc stock and on the front J-Card's cover graphics and on the back J-Card text description and is shipped in durable shatterproof jewel case stock. Okay. Beautifully inkjet printed is a phrase that hasn't been enticing since about 1997. And shatterproof jewel case... What is the opposite of shatterproof? Whatever it is, that's what CD jewel cases are made of. 
I've got at least one scar from being cut by the razor-sharp edge of plastic from a jewel case. The seller claims to be, quote, the World Wide Web's first most renowned and awarded historical multimedia archives since its establishment in 1996. So I went to their website and it looks like it was last updated in 1996. They appear to sell audio and video clips of various things, much of it in the public domain and some of it like, um, oh, say their Warner Brothers cartoon sounds collection, very likely not in the public domain, very likely not licensed by the Time Warner Corporation. So we're going to be moving into the late 80s and uh, 1990s uh, when things really took off and subsequently jumped over some sharks. But first, this. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thanks very much to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated. And thank you for the feedback on our uh, Reinhold Schmidt episode. A lot of uh, a lot of people seem to like that, and a lot more people are familiar with the films of Ron Ormond than uh, than I expected. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life, as I hope you know since you're listening to it, is available anywhere you can find podcasts. Okay, into the late 80s and the early 90s. Billy Goodman was a Las Vegas radio personality who, and I thank Adam Gorightly for mentioning uh, this in a write-up on his blog, once recorded a record about a Martian visiting Earth. Goodman's show took a turn toward the paranormal in the late 1980s, just as the whole Area 51, Bob Lazar, John Lear, Bill Cooper stuff started percolating. And for Goodman, a lot of this was a local story since he was in Vegas. So these figures all loomed large in his rotation of guests. Cooper would be on the show a number of times. And we've heard some clips from uh, the show, the, uh, the Billy Goodman happening, on our uh, episode where we took a look at Bill English and his claims a few months back. The show also had some good callers, including one known only as Yellow Fruit, who usually claimed to have some kind of black operations background. Here, Yellow Fruit shares his wisdom about Bill Cooper. Yellow Fruit. Whoa. Where have you been, Yellow Fruit? Oh, yeah. Um, you're asking on how you can improve your show and... Uh... Yeah, well, in other words, what you particularly might want more of or less of or whatever the case may be, yeah. Well, I put uh, Bill Cooper's voice under a voice stress analyzer, and uh, he is telling the truth as he knows it. His information is not always 100% accurate, but uh, he's pretty close, and uh, he is a sincere person. Do you know him? No, I put his voice under a stress analyzer. Oh, you did it. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I thought you said I, what you suggested I could do. Oh, you've already done that. Yeah. Oh, great. Oh, great. You put his voice under a stress analyzer. A completely normal thing to do. But uh, despite Yellow Fruit's happy-go-lucky, happy-go-lucky, happy-go-lucky sound and attitude, Yellow Fruit had some issues. Um, I was a little bit insulted the other night 
when people suggested that uh, Yellow Fruit and the Contras might be involved in selling drugs for a black operation, I can assure you that's not necessary. Um, we don't need the money, and there's nobody more loyal to uh, the United States and to God than Yellow Fruit. Okay, who We're said absolutely that? Absolutely dedicated to God. Well, that's beautiful. Yellow Fruit, not working with the Contras, loyal to God, talks about himself in the third person. Goodman would eventually lose his Las Vegas show and end up on shortwave, I believe somewhere out of New England, um, I think. He died in 2009. Now, as we get into the 90s, we've mentioned Paranet before. It was a big UFO bulletin board system that served as a hub for online communication about UFOs in the days before the internet was as widely available as it is now. Paranet also had a radio show called the Paranet Continuum, which began in 1994, I believe, and ran in various forms for several years. The host was the late Michael Corbin, and the show took what it called a skeptical believer approach to the UFO phenomenon. They had the usual suspects on, Stan Friedman, Kevin Randall, Richard Hoagland, whoever, but they also had a number of really interesting guests. Father Malachi Martin, the Catholic priest who discussed exorcisms and the like, was, I always thought, much more interesting on Paranet than when he was on his many Art Bell appearances. Here's the intro to the show, which always seemed to go on much longer than it needed to, but was always very effective. Stay tuned for one of the most fascinating programs you'll ever hear as we explore the strange and mysterious world of the paranormal and UFOs. Welcome to the Paranet Continuum a weekly program dealing with extraordinary claims of the paranormal on Earth and beyond. Whether or not you believe in the paranormal, the controversies are real, and this program will try to get to the bottom of it. Your host is Michael Corbin, director of Paranet Information Services, a global communications network based near Denver, Colorado, dedicated to the investigation of parapsychology, futuristic science, and the UFO enigma. We invite you to keep an open mind as we discuss some of the most fascinating and strange subjects around. Now here's your host, Michael Corbin. There's an episode, a couple episodes that I do not have in my collection, and uh, which I used to, but you know, who knows where some of these things are. But there's one in particular from 1997, after the hale Heaven's Gate suicide thing where uh, Corbin held a roundtable on an episode of the Paranet Continuum with a number of other radio hosts and UFO personalities, and they had this completely brutal roundtable where they dissected Art Bell and Whitley Strieber's treatment of the Hale Bop stuff and discussed what complicity those guys had, if any, with the Heaven's Gate mass suicide. I'm going to keep looking. I'm, I'm going to try to find this episode. Meanwhile, if you have it, let me know, and I will, uh, I will share it with everybody. Now, continuing on into the 90s, uh, we, have, we have a guy named uh, who's still around named Jeff Rents. Now, what's weird, among the many things that are weird, what's weird is that I, I first heard Jeff Rents long before I heard Art Bell for whatever reason. 
Rents' show began as a local one in Santa Barbara, California called The End of the Line. It got picked up nationally, and through a partnership with the then-current TV program Sightings, it became Sightings on the radio. That deal eventually ended, and from that point on, the show was The Jeff Rents Show. Rents' show has always had a larger proportion of sort of hardcore political conspiracy as part of it, and a lot of alternative health-type things. But as the years went on, uh, especially um, especially after the sightings partnership came to an end, UFOs went way to the back of the line. And a more anti-Semitic, generally r- racial, nationalist, populist conspiracism came to the fore. I mean, for a while there, and maybe still, David Duke was a regular guest. Despite having a prominent Klansman show up, numerous figures within ufology would would still be guests, but fewer and fewer as the years went on. He still, I think, regularly has David John Oates, the reverse speech guy who famously feuded with Art Bell 20 years ago uh, as one of his guests, and we'll talk about that in a second. It's an odd show, uh, despite its decline toward, you know, my opinion here, abject racism and fear-mongering. It was... 20-some years ago, a decent show. Certainly, Rents conducted much better interviews with some guests than uh, than Art did at times. One example is Jim Keith, who only showed up on Coast to Coast once, I believe, but was on with Rents several times. Here, in this clip, they discuss disinformation in the UFO field. The, uh, the issue of, of disinformation continues. Would you suggest that uh, there are a number of uh, so-called top UFO researchers who are eminent in the field, respected, well-known, who uh, may be uh, de facto uh, working for other folks? I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, for instance, um, I, uh, I, I, hate, uh, I hate being uh, stuck with this, uh, uh, with this label of being controversial, but I can't seem to help it. But uh, William Moore, for instance, has admitted collaboration with the government. Uh, he also has had close contact with his Sergeant Richard Doty uh, mm-hmm. out of the um, Air Force Base in, uh, in Albuquerque. Well, Moore has an interesting way of trying to uh, explain that away, though, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of the the, the me lie explanation. You know, I don't I don't know what it is. Um, I don't I don't really know uh, what was going on. I guess maybe he assumed by being in, or may he he may have assumed that by being in touch with the government he could find out what they knew. I don't really know. But on the other right. hand, he has admitted that he was informing on other uh, researchers, um, which I uh, think uh, goes outside the boundary of ethics. Pretty but abhorrent, yes. What's, I, I didn't hear you, Jeff. Pretty abhorrent. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, anyway. Yeah, okay. Well, that's a good point. I'm not exactly sure what was the good point there, but that little sort of weird exchange where they weren't really sure who was going to say what next is a great example of how live radio tended to, uh, and still tends to be a little awkward sometimes. So during the mid to late 90s, Rents and Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM were constantly battling for stations, and uh, clearly Bell eventually came out on top, or at least Coast to Coast AM did, which leads us to, as one uh, one listener put it on, I think, Facebook or Twitter, the 800-pound gorilla in the room of this topic, Art Bell. What can be said about Art Bell that hasn't already been said? We covered his newsletter, the After Dark newsletter, a while ago, 
And there's a convoluted and oft sort of debated pedigree to the show. At one point, he hosted a UFO-focused show called Area 2000, which was funded by Robert Bigelow, who you may have heard of, and had the involvement of George Knapp and Linda Moulton Howe. That ended relatively quickly, but his coast-to-coast political talk show, Coast to Coast AM, eventually, began to take on more paranormal topics and spawned a weekend spinoff called Dreamland, which was explicitly about paranormal stuff. There are so many classic Art Bell moments, and way up there for me was the Hale-Bopp companion saga, which, as we heard about when talking about Paranet, was blamed for the Heaven's Gate suicides. There was the uh, kerfluffle with the reverse speech guru David John Oates. If you're not familiar with reverse speech, basically his theory, as I understand it, is this. If you take something that someone says and play it backwards you can interpret words. And those words are what their subconscious is actually thinking or saying. So you can learn the truth about what, for example, a politician is saying by playing whatever they said backwards and then kind of interpreting the sounds you hear as certain words. It is, um, and I don't want to offend anybody out there who's into this, it is the flat dang dumbest thing that I have ever heard of. And I've heard of a lot of really dumb stuff. The kerfluffle with Oates and um, and Bell ended in a lot of lawsuits. There were, you know, by the late 90s, his numerous retirements and unretirements. There was the very sad death of his wife, Ramona, and the bizarre and troubling fan outrage on his remarriage um, a, a, a year or so later. I was following that on some Art Bell message boards at the time, and and I think for me the most, I mean, if Art finds happiness or found happiness with a new wife, wonderful, just wonderful, and so sad that you know he passed away with with the young children, with the children he had with uh, with Aaron, still so young. But um, the the best part of it for me was that all of this this relationship with this woman from the Philippines all sort of started and was mixed up and sort of initiated by one of his ham radio friends, and. For some reason, I always remember there's this goofy picture of this, imagine a stereotypical ham radio guy, right? And his handle was Hamhawk. And I, I just always, I was always tickled by that. I just, I just found that fun. But out of all that, my favorite Art Bell moment, and I'm not even going to try to pick some obscure thing like, oh, you may think that that's cool, but this Art Bell moment from 1993 that you've never heard of is really the best one. No, none of that. I'm going to pick the one that that almost everybody picks. And that was from September 11th, 1997, where he had a show with a dedicated call-in line for listeners who had worked at Area 51. And there was one call that was just amazing. And I'm sure about 80% of you know what you're going to hear right now. Uh, but still it's, it's downright just flat out the best art bell moment ever in my mind. You're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes. Hi. Um, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, let's begin yeah. by finding out whether you're using this line properly or not. Uh, area, area 51. Yeah, um, that's right. Were you an employee or are you now? Uh, I, a former employee. Former um, employee. I, I, I was let go on a medical discharge about a week ago. And, and, <laughs> I, I, 
know, I've kind of been running a, across the country, um, oh, man, I don't know where to start. They're, uh, they're, they're going to, um, they'll triangulate on this position really, really soon. Well, um, you can't spend a lot of time on the phone, so give us something quick. Okay, um, um, okay, well, what we're thinking of as, as aliens are, they're, uh, they're, they're extra-dimensional beings that... An earlier precursor of the um, space program made contact with. Uh, they they are not what they claim to be. Uh, they have infiltrated a lot of uh, uh, a lot of aspects of, of of the military establishment, particularly the Area 51. Uh, the, the disasters that are coming. They the, the military. I'm sorry, the, the government knows about them, and there's a lot of safe areas in this world that they could begin moving the population to now, Art. But they're not doing, they're not doing anything. They are not. They want the major population centers wiped out so that the, the few that are left will be more easily controllable. And then it cut off, and at least in the copy I have, it goes to some, um, I I think it's Dancing Queen, one of his usual ABBA bumper music pieces, and uh, it it comes back, and he, he sort of talks about you know what uh what happened they got knocked off the air and this is uh this is a his explanation of it with a a very sort of uh i'm gonna say mellow caller a few minutes later in some way something knocked us off the air and we're on a backup system now it's the government or i don't know it has to be something though my associate producer, Simpson J. Hanover III, insists that I put up a section on the website of potential text message ringtones or notification tones like we talked about in that last episode of uh, The Saucer Afterlife. And if I were to do that, this would absolutely be one of them. It's a government or... Now, all of that, all of that was, was just incredible radio. Was it real? Who cares? It was awesome. Um, it, it was awesome. Art played being confused. I mean, if he wasn't really confused, he was, I'm not sure he's that good of an actor, but it was just so much fun and just incredible. And, uh, then a subsequent caller who also claimed to have worked at area 51 said, you won't be hearing from that caller ever again. Art and explained how he used to plug leaks at area 51. And, and art was like, I, I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean? Plug leaks. And and Art realizes, oh, did you do what they call wet work? And the caller says, yes. It was, it was wonderful. I just loved it. My only real regret is that I never experienced these Art Bell moments live. As I, I For a long time, I didn't live where Art was broadcasting, at least during his, his golden years. My first memorable live Art Bell experience was during an all-night drive in November 2003 when John Lear made his return. It was like the late 80s had come back and uh, was beating me about the head and body with pure ufological excitement. So, what did you all say when I asked you about um, what 
radio programs were significant and what stuck out to you. Unsurprisingly, a lot of Coast to Coast AM and Art Bell. Actually, very few mentions of Coast to Coast AM, lots of mentions of Art Bell. I wonder what that says about the current state of Coast to Coast AM. I'm, I've got no comment. Uh, Long John Neville came up a lot. A couple people mentioned the Paranet. Uh, Adam Gorightly mentioned uh, Los Angeles host Michael Jackson, not that Michael Jackson, who covered paranormal stuff from time to time. And what's interesting is, is even though I can find no record of talk show host Michael Jackson broadcasting on a platform bigger than Los Angeles, I swear during that same time of day, my grandpa in Indiana listened to a talk show host called Michael Jackson in like 1982, 1983. I might have been hallucinating, though. Um, John E.L. Tenney, researcher and and uh, and speaker John E.L. Tenney from here in Michigan, uh, brought up a program called Incredible But True that was broadcast by a station in northern Michigan back in the 1950s. Basically, these were short, well-crafted tellings of incidents from various uh, Charles Fort type uh, type collections. There's a link uh, in the show notes to a blog post that John wrote about it, uh, and also some links to the stories that John has there for us. What's really interesting is that I don't think, and I, I may have overlooked it, is that nobody mentioned Jeff Rents, which is a little a little interesting to me um, because Rents, for all his off the deep endedness over the last twenty years, was a significant player. And I think part of that might be, I don't maybe we have a young audience, I'm not sure, uh, but maybe the uh, the relative lack of UFO um, content compared to other paranormal and, and conspiratorial content may be a factor. But one thing about Rents that I neglected to mention earlier was that I, I'm pretty sure Rents was the main U.S. talk radio platform for David Icke uh, throughout the 1990s. It's certainly where I first heard about David Icke, where I first heard about the reptilians, where I first heard Icke's incredible propensity to somehow believe everything he'd ever been told by anybody and managed to create a kind of narrative out of it. Now, several people offered up Orson Welles's War of the Worlds broadcast and uh, the panic it caused as being a significant radio UFO moment and I'm uh, I'm going to allow it, even if it's not entirely within the spirit of what I was uh, I was looking for. And one of the things about that that I always remember is that it, it puts me in mind of Bill Cooper's discussion of the War of the Worlds broadcast as being part of the international globalist conspiracy to usher in the New World Order, because of course it was. Cooper talked about it a lot on an episode of The Hour of the Time, on a couple episodes of The Hour of the Time. And um, given that we're already about 45 minutes into this episode, we're not going to talk about it here, but it is going to be the subject of uh, the saucer afterlife next week. Since it's not really, uh, World of the Worlds is not really sort of in the purview of what we're doing here. And, uh, and, and you know, Bill Cooper is a... Uh, is, yeah, Bill Cooper. We're going to save that one. So next, uh, a week from when this drops, we'll have a little bit about that. Now, there are other shows I could mention, of course. Don Ecker's UFOs Tonight was huge. Uh, Greg Bishop's Radio Mysterioso ran on local pirate radio in Los Angeles for a while. So I think that counts. Um, this show could have been so long. There could be a whole podcast about UFO radio shows. Now, 
here's the question. To, to, to what degree did paranormal radio shape the UFO field? And, and to what degree did the UFO field shape paranormal radio? And to what degree was it a symbiotic relationship? I I have a feeling that uh, that the, the, the guests that made good radio tended to get the most airtime, obviously. And because of that airtime, they tended to become much bigger players in the field than their actual research output might uh, might justify. I, I think I'm, I've got some names in my head, but uh, they're still alive, so I might keep my mouth shut uh, till they die. Which could be any time now, honestly. Uh, but um, I'm sure you all have names in your head as well. So the uh, role of the media, the role of the radio media in promoting the UFO uh, agenda, if you will, in the 1990s is undeniable. And the, the question now is, is what role does a show like Coast to Coast AM play in a world where um, any idiot with, uh, with a microphone and, uh, and, and you know, like 10 bucks a month can have a podcast that reaches you know, upwards of like eight people? Um, e- even I have a podcast and I'm nobody. So what room does terrestrial radio have in this world? And I think that's something, uh, something interesting to keep in mind as we uh, continue to be uh, cautious and critical consumers of media content. There are links to several of these shows, um, programs discussed uh, in the show notes. The Jeff Reds program and Coast to Coast AM have paid archival memberships to access old stuff. Um, I'm sure you can find other sources if you tried. Uh, Scattered episodes of the defunct programs I mentioned can also be scattered around the internet. Uh, Use your ingenuity. I'd start with the Internet Archive at archive.org and, of course, YouTube. Thank you for listening. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>